Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. This week, we have a particularly spicy guest, Simon Taylor, writer of Fintech Brain Food, one of the best weekend reads on all things fintech, formerly head of ventures at 11FS, and now head of strategy and content for Sardine. Despite the time difference, Simon and I dig into some real brain food with some hot wings and hot takes on the future of fintech, why Web3 still matters, and why the intersection of know your customer and risk management practices could completely upturn traditional finance. In the second half, Chrissy Ilkey, who spearheads user experience at Horicon Bank, and I talk about their journey towards personalization. The genesis of this conversation was a panel Chrissy and I did for Total Expert, but I wanted the opportunity to understand Horicon's why behind the decision to embark on a user experience overhaul, the challenges they've faced, and the road ahead. All right, another day of hot wings and hot takes. And you know, for the record, we'd let this scratchy voice everyone know Simon Taylor is in London. I am in Minneapolis. But for the sake of the craft, I have still made myself hot wings for breakfast. I mean, why wouldn't you, right? Simon, tell tell me the spiciest thing you see going on in fintech right now. Uh, Fintech is not dead, um, but everybody thinks it is. I don't know. What's the spiciest thing going on? Is FTX going to buy everything? Um, Are we all going to be working for Sam Blankman Fried in the near future? Or is is it just going to be in the battle for everything? It's going to be Jamie Dimon versus Sam Bankman Freed for who gets to control the universe. I don't know how it's going to play out. Well, don't forget Amazon likes to buy things and you know build things and invest in things. There's others, but there's definitely the the battle for uh, global domination. Although I don't know if anyone is playing as boldly as FTX in terms of going after some of these assets. Do you think they actually know what they're buying in many of these cases, or are they being opportunistic? Both. Um, I think they know what they're buying from a like regulatory license strategy standpoint, but I don't know if they know what they're doing from a rolling up the technology, the cultures, the people, the languages, the all of that yeah. stuff. Because it's easy to buy a company. It's very hard to integrate it. Like If you scratch under the surface of countless banks, you see the 15 banks that they used to be still kind of there operating with all of their systems and all of their people and weird independent cultures with the same logo all over the top of it. And those efficiencies that the M&A bankers like, you know, maybe FTX strike me as like the traders, traders dream. And they built the perfect trading tool for traders and did incredibly well, go incredibly profitable, could reinvent capital markets, but now want to go reset everything and are being really opportunistic like traders. But are they people that can integrate technology culture people? Well, in your latest brain food, you had a great piece on this about trade five failing us. What did you mean by TradeFi is failing us? TradeFi is the wonder of the modern age. It has enabled every bit of infrastructure, financial services, healthcare, um, 
You can't send a rocket to space or build a school without financing it. So let's go back to the 1600s and the invention, the Dutch merchants really coming up with banking. Well done, you guys, and everybody that followed you, because you did some amazing things. But that was a long-ass time ago. And I think we might need a bit of an upgrade. Now it's at the point where the infrastructure is so creaking, the infrastructure is so slow, that we have real problems in the world. And it's often because we can't, there's so much liquidity, there's so much capital locked in this existing system, and it's not upgradable. And because it's not upgradable, we can't afford to financially include people. It's too expensive to take risk without being predatory. We can't afford to reduce the cost of borrowing. We can't afford to deal with uh, a lot of other things that are going on in the world. So the infrastructure is not transparent. It's not global. It's not 24-7. It is nine to five. And if you can figure out where the money laundering happened, then good on you, because most people inside of an AML and compliance department are really struggling with that. Those guys are the heroes. They're on the front line of making the world a better place. Like I don't think they get enough credit for how hard their job is. But it's it, the failings are everywhere because it's, it's just not upgradable. Well, how does one go about an upgrade you know, globally, right? Like the point being, each one of these systems grew incrementally. Then we connected systems upon systems, changing those things out, right? It's the reason the cores are such a mess. It turns out when you look at how these things all interact and each customer has a slightly different implementation, that's a really big struggle to go, hey, let's go. It's bigger than a core change. You're right. We've seen this movie. We've seen this movie because the answer is uh, don't change your core, adopt the standard. So the wonderful thing about DeFi is if you zoom out and go look at what happened with communications, like everybody had a network and everybody was putting X509 uh, kind of networks in for a long, like, yeah, I saw you smile. Like those veterans have been there and it was super sophisticated stuff and it was very hard work. And were you going to go with token ring? Were you going to go with ethernet? There were all of these like competing um, standards in infrastructure for network working for a long time. And then somebody comes along with this protocol and just goes, boff, just adopt that. Now there was OSI 7 layer and there was TCP IP and ultimately one wins out. But eventually the telcos start to adopt it and this network of networks, abstracted infrastructure starts to, to take off. It's a lot harder to do that with money. Like sending a few packets that are not lossless back and forth is 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 a little bit easier than like not losing money. But I do think we're brute forcing our way towards like just in the same way, my advice to anybody who's thinking about how do they replace their core is don't leave yeah. it there for a long time, build something new, make a business case, make that successful. Like have a child, don't try and become a child yourself. Don't try and like turn yourself into the 17 year old version of you. Like have a child and let them grow up and be successful and then give them all of your best traits, all of your best learnings and experience. Same is true for infrastructure. We're building an alternative external global financial system. It just happens to be called DeFi. It just happens to be very young. It's going through its teenage phase. It's a bit moody. It's a bit depressed at the moment. But once it's through its goth phase, then there's really something special there. Going through its goth phase, very poignant. Yeah, get it. So, and I think one of the challenges is the trappings of the goth phase, right? The NFTs, the scams, um, 
the you know bull massive bull market in crypto followed by a crash because everybody was in it you know th there's nothing worse than hearing from three consecutive uber drivers about their crypto <laughs> right you know the 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 thing uh, i think every generation looks at teenagers and goes ew and yet the things that the teenagers are doing in 20 years time are the some of the biggest industries in the world i mean i definitely remember granted i was definitely not a teenager at the time everybody reacting to social media and iPhones is like, how, how social media ever going to make any money? I don't know. Meta did pretty well. Um, how is the, the iPhone's just a toy. I don't want to play angry birds. I need to send an email. Like this is what people look at things that the teenagers are doing and they judge it backwardly and people overstate the pace of change and understate the impact consistently. The optimists have overstated the pace of change with the with DeFi will bring. But I think everybody is understating the impact it will eventually have. And the crazy thing is, I don't know when it will have it. It could be 10 years, it could be 20 years, it might be 30 years. Who knows? It's somewhere between those. But that impact will still be massive. So when you put aside the speculation, what you got to remember is most people who really care about this infrastructure hate the speculation just as much as most bankers do. Like it's it's the people who showed up to the, to the party and then sort of set the bins on fire and, and did a whole bunch of stuff that you didn't. You just wanted a nice barbecue. You just wanted yeah. to have a fun time. You just wanted to have some hot wings on the 4th of July and then a bunch of frat boys showed up. That's what it feels like if you were in crypto, that these other people came along, built these speculative games. But now the industry is learning how to adapt to that and make it more robust and become useful. It's, it's kind of crazy. Uh, Web 2 went from like really useful but not making any money Web3 has gone from making a lot of money, but not very useful. It's it's I come back the other way around. Well, in, circling back to where you started, though, you know, a big part of this is um, you know, fintech is not dead, but we needed a little bit of this reckoning to get the frat boys out of the party. And I think every uh, young adult goes through that phase where they realize they're not invincible. Like if you follow the path, the quarter life crisis, you know, I think that's where fintech is. It's it's just left college. Um, it's it's gone into the real world, and things are a lot harder now. And suddenly there are bills to pay and there are responsibilities. But also, it's one of the most important times where you figure out who you are and what you're going to be. And that is exactly the sort of introspection point that I think fintech is in. In that it's there are bits of it that are super usable. But are they sustainable? There are bits of it that are super sustainable, but maybe need need work. And there are some big brands out there that have lots of customer mind share. And then there are great business models. Like generally, possibly my spiciest take is that people hating on BNPL are just flat wrong. Like just flat wrong, end to end, hate on it as much as you want. But what you're really hating on is credit. You're hating on the idea that consumers can take out borrowing for things that they can't afford. And guess what? That's all credit. And what we need is responsible lending. Yes, we need responsible lending. BNPL could be responsible. It might be irresponsible. But damn, it's better than payday lending and some of the crap we've seen in the past. So all of this will mature. And uh, I'm a believer in the anti-fragility principle that now fintech, we're going to find out what lasts. There's enough of it out there to figure it out. And I don't think the genie is going to go back in the bottle. Is it going to be as big as the hype merchant suggested maybe 12 months ago, you know, July 21? Maybe not. 
But SoftBank and Tiger and some of the other crossover funds coming out of the space, throwing cash on things that probably didn't need them, not doing that anymore is probably a good thing. Valuations getting back to something sensible and people talking about this thing called profitability. What a wonderful idea. What a, what a, what a crazy idea. So getting back to those first principles, I think, is really nice. Well, and I think the amount of money chasing too few deals or chasing growth was the thing that kept us from really looking at fundamentals and valuation was disconnected from value creation completely right because it was driven by the economics of you know what the seller the startup was willing to part with and the buyer was desperate to pick up and i think in venture we have seen models where grow 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 figure out profitability later has had some incredible winners amazon you know, Facebook. There were a lot of folks that didn't know how they were going to monetize and their user numbers were going up and then they did monetize and they became massive. There's a lot of folks that didn't as well. There are those case studies on the other side. In fintech, we've sort of been through a little bit of that. I think some of these now will start to monetize, um, but it depends on your like regulated position, your position in the market. Like Maybe you have a great brand, but you haven't done a lot of cross-selling. I would put some of the neobanks in that category of like they've got a great brand, but really they're a debit card. They're starting to launch other products. They're looking for charters. Uh, but can they can they get there? BNPL, great brand, lots of customers, lots of activation. Can they survive through the credit cycle? Can they get to core unit economics? And then there's like that second tier of me too competitors yeah. who might have got a couple million customers, but they're a long way from good unit economics. They were relying on that next round. For those folks, I think they look like interesting acquisition targets, roll-up targets, and things if I was in a corp VC team or strategy team, I'd be looking very closely at in terms of what can we learn from them and, and how can how can that add to the portfolio of, a, of somebody who already has a charter and knows what risk is. Well, speaking of risk and the hypergrowth, one of the things that is often overlooked in hypergrowth is risk. Oh, and... Goodness. Right in the AML, right when we see some of the washout from the numbers, when you're at grow at all costs, you don't necessarily spend a whole lot of time weeding out the bad actors, right? Or you at least are willing to put on rose-colored glasses when you think about them. Hundred percent. So my colleague at Sardine, Alex Kushner, uh, has a great line. He says, uh, "You've either got a fraud problem or you've got a growth problem." Because if you haven't got a fraud problem, you've definitely got a growth problem. And that's consistent in venture in that uh, you can, it's, it's very easy to not have any growth. You can just say no to all transactions. And guess what? You'll have no fraud either. And so that's our good friend, false positives. Same yep. with um, if you don't want any anti-money laundering or identity problems, just say no to all everybody that comes through the door and you're not going to have to deal with any, any risk whatsoever. That's obviously not tenable. So you've got to find this line of like, how do I actually increase growth? Now, the flip side, we're seeing it come back the other way. If you push so hard for growth, what you start to see is that, uh, for example, I think Chime is now blocked by Hertz Rent-A-Car. And several. And some, several hotel chains that I've checked into recently. And gr great product great people. Um, this is a sophisticated issue. Um, and it may be historic. And, and there's a lot of things that some of the bigger banks are doing that may not be playing fair. But all of that aside, if the big banks 
start to see high fraud rates, if the merchants start to see high fraud rates because somebody was pushing so hard for growth for a long time, then suddenly your consumer experience starts to get terrible because now my card doesn't work. Now my trust in you as a brand is is diminishing. Now I'm not going to use you every day and you're getting less transactions, which means you're getting less interchange revenue. So the fraud problem hits you on growth uh, I think on the on the back end as much as anything, uh, and if you stop it at the front end, you can sort of find this balance between how do I get lower false positives, less chargebacks, how do I get um, more transactions approved, and that is the the real stuff that gets me excited in fintech is once you once you really understand how it works under the hood and what really drives the numbers and the long term sustainable growth, it's always something over on the risk side that really builds the balance of consumer experience and um, kind of growth from, from that side. Like building great product experiences in fintech seems easy because the banking experiences historically either relied on a branch or were not that great. But actually, there was a reason that they were so complicated. So putting those two together, taking all of the risk and getting the numbers into a really good place from a risk standpoint and continuing to grow and building great consumer experiences is this constantly evolving riddle that I find so fascinating. Well, in that riddle, three things jump to mind. Uh, this is not well thought out at the, this point, but what came to mind, is it a business issue? I'll define that in a second. Is it a technological issue or is it a user experience issue mm. that is overcomplicating it? Because one of the hardest things around fraud, AML, and risk is, as you pointed out, if you either have a growth problem or a fraud problem, proving you prevented fraud is a hard thing to do, which oh, then okay. always seems to undermine the business case where we need to invest more in fraud, risk, AML. And I think that often mean, is a result of people flying blind. Uh, a lot of financial institutions and neobanks only have the data that they've got about their customers. They don't know um, what all of the other neobanks are seeing. They don't know what the banks are seeing. They don't know what the uh, telcos are seeing. They don't know what uh, kind of the government sees. So there are networks and ways to get access to that data and not to make it a, a, an advertisement because some of the competition do this too. But one of the things that um, Sardine does is, is get that EWS data from the bank consortiums. You get the data from the telcos. You get open banking data. You put together the things that are already there and you put it into a dashboard. And if you start to put all of that together, now I'm not flying blind anymore. Now I can actually see, wait, did this turn into more transactions and did it become fraud down the line? One of the other things that blew my mind is most fraud comes from properly KYC'd customers. In fact, most identity fraudsters manage to pass most KYC procedures. Unless you're thinking holistically, unless you're putting all of these pieces together, you know, it's nice to have transaction monitoring, but transaction monitoring for what? And that transaction looks clean with a registered customer, but what happened in the world of crypto? Like, have yep. you connected tools like Chainalysis and Elliptic to what's happening here? So it's very, very hard to get that full picture. And I think that's going to be where the innovation is in, in the sort of the, the coming sort of three to five years is how do neobanks, fintech companies, uh, community banks, crypto companies kind of build this, this data model that is a rising tide for everybody. Like we want less fraud, we want better consumer experience, we want more growth. But in order to do that, we've got to collaborate. Well, and that has always been the danger, right? Is it feels dangerous to share data, even if it does benefit all of us. How do I know that you know, 
the data is not being stolen. And I think this is actually where the case for some of DeFi comes in, that you know information can now be exchanged in a way that you're not stealing my customers. You're not getting a customer file and Simon's going to go target my best customers. Oh my goodness, yeah. It's one of the best things about uh, open banking and DeFi. So with open banking, what you get is the customer consenting to give you their transaction history. So I, as one financial institution, have not sent another financial institution anything. The customer has given the permission to pull it across. And I think that reorients where risk is and opportunity is. And DeFi and Web3 takes that to another extreme, which is to fundamentally say that data doesn't belong to a financial institution, neobank or crypto company. The data entirely belongs to the customer, and they can permission any algorithm anywhere in the world to look at it should, should they wish to. Because let's face it, nobody has more information about Jason than Jason. The bank doesn't know what the government knows about you. The government doesn't know what Apple knows about you. Apple doesn't know what Google knows about you. Like nobody has a bigger data set about you than you. And so if we fundamentally shift the center of gravity about who holds data and who gets to permission it, then I think we can build some incredible user experiences. Well, that's a major fundamental shift, right? And it almost requires the uprising of the consumer or maybe it starts on the business sense where you know creating less friction or removing friction there's an economic benefit to them too possibly i don't know if it needs an uprising the next big thing always starts out looking like a toy so actually i think it started with consumers buying nfts because consumers custody that asset in a Web3 wallet. This is like sticking a picture of your cat inside of your leather wallet. Like yeah. that goes everywhere the leather wallet goes and nobody can see it. And nobody can move it out of that leather wallet unless you take it out and give it to somebody else. But it's got superpowers because now, unlike a picture of a cat in your leather wallet, there is no way for uh, some other software developer in the world to make you an offer for 10% off pictures of dogs just because you have that cat in that wallet. They don't know who you are. They just happen to have a shared database of everybody who has a picture of a cat in their wallet. And that's what uh, Web3 starts to bring is this beautiful mix of transparency in terms of where an asset lives but privacy in terms of who holds that asset. And you can fix the, oh, but it's anonymous thing by just whenever you have a transaction that requires KYC, make sure that everybody can see that KYC has been done. And by the way, that's super powerful. That's worth saying again, right? Like that pairing of identity and transaction and the permissionings. Yeah, it's... The first time that we have the opportunity to fundamentally rethink how legal persons interact with property. And that is a fundamental upgrade because historically what you did is you had uh, banks and financial institutions would hold on to your stuff so it didn't get lost. I would stick my gold and my money in the bank branch so that it is protected. However, this means that the money, the gold that's sitting on in San Francisco, it's very hard to get it to New York. And yep. so we built these systems and blah, blah, blah. But the mental model stayed. Whereas really, the most effective thing would be if I could carry it around everywhere I want to go. Now, the one other thing about the digital world is there is zero cost of me carrying around everything with me everywhere I go, because it's it's a fraction of a fraction of a penny to really move value like an email. 
Uh, it, we are at that point now. So how do we reorient that and how do we get to that balance of privacy and data ownership? And I think what you see then is a second order challenge. Okay, it's one thing if I'm not looking after your assets anymore, but what happens if your wallet gets hacked? Because the great th- the problem with being your own bank is dealing with your own bank robbers. The reason we went to the bank in the first place is because I don't want to carry around my monthly salary. That's a pretty big risk of theft. So what do I do? Well, in Web3, instead of um, managing the assets necessarily, we manage the keys. So uh, unlike the key to your house, you know, if, if I lose the key to my house, I don't lose my house. Like I can call the police and say, oh, I lost the key to the house. I can call a locksmith. I'm the legal owner of my house. In Web3, if I lose the key to my wallet, those assets are gone. That's it. And so there's an opportunity there for people who help consumers, who help businesses manage keys. And I think that's going to change what distribution looks like and what trust looks like in this DeFi world. And then there's an opportunity to help people deal with risk in this new world. So the fundamental first principles things that financial institutions always did still make sense. The economic need is still there. But I think you've got to reorganize the mental models of why and how and how ownership works from first principles. So. As we wrap up, what would need to change to pierce your optimism here? When you look at this and say, you know, at a first order, my optimism for what this future looks like rests on the following things happening. Yeah, regular is not going too far. Um, we got very close with uh, Mika in Europe to potentially breaking Web3 in Europe. Um, and it would have made consent cookies look ridiculous where they, where they were going with that. And the reason is... The way we um, manage risk in the financial system today is predicated on KYC, knowing exactly what account belongs to what legal person. In DeFi, if I do that, I create a privacy nightmare because every transaction ever is recorded in perpetuity. So I know not only which store you went to to buy your wings, which you bought the hot sauce from, uh, what train you boarded the last time you went to a, a gas station, I would know all of that. I would be able to stalk you perfectly if you were kyc So we do not want that really baked into the technology. We want something that balances that privacy and where it off-ramps with an interaction. We want to be sensible about that. I fear that what we're going to try and do is copy-paste mental models from the analog world onto this new infrastructure. That would really, really mess with it. And I think the other thing is the non-zero probability that this uh, recession turns into a depression, which turns into a lot, lot more than that. And we end up in a, some climate nightmare, war, global war that eventually ends the species over the next 50 years. So, you know, there's, there's, always, um, there's always extinction. Yeah, extinction would, you know, fundamentally wipe out fintech. I think we can all agree on that. But Bitcoin would still run. (laughs) Bitcoin would still run. Simon, thanks for taking the time, giving us your spicy takes. Here, loved it. (laughs) Thank you so much. Hello, listeners. I'm Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. Together, myself and Dr. Richard Petty have recently released our latest best-selling book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. We look at how inequality, artificial intelligence, and climate change are going to shape our world moving forward. 
During the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires ballooned. The richest 1% added $1.6 trillion to their wealth, meaning that they own more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans today. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic, but artificial intelligence could disrupt up to 80% of the jobs today. These new industries we are creating will face labor shortages because we aren't training our students with the right skills. By 2050, we'll need to produce 70% more food to feed the 9 billion inhabitants of the planet, but we lost 40% of our farmland to erosion and pollution in the last 50 years. By 2050, 570 global cities face inundation from sea rise. Miami, Guangzhou, New York, Calcutta, and Shanghai are just the top five cities. If you want to know more about the solutions to these problems, check out The Rise of Techno-Socialism, our latest best-selling book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or go to riseoftechnosocialism.com to find out more. Welcome to the future. Chrissy, I'm curious about the journey to Total Expert and how this started, because I'm pretty sure no, it, it did, wasn't, you know, the... Hey, you know, someone woke up and said, Hey, we need to be doing, you know, more user journeys. Or someone met him at a conference, came back with the card, and, you know, you guys were all like, Hey, we should go be doing this. So, what was the insight? Like, where did this journey start? And I want to hear kind of like the, the inception, sure. you know, the getting there, the middle, the end related to it. Yeah. So we've known for a, a long time that, you know, we're growing, we need to be more robust with our intent for marketing and talking to our customers. So a CRM is, is the next best thing, right? And so, you know, you do your due diligence of going through all your different vendors and Total Expert just really stood out to us that of their culture and matching what ours was. So, you know, we started the talks and really liked what they had going and how it was, you know, your CRM, but yet, yet more. And you did have those customer journeys and you did have um, all of these different touch points of creating, you know, bringing in the digital side and, and plus just the team. We really uh, connected really well with the team and uh, just really wanted to, to go on this journey with them. So you brought up culture. I'm curious yeah. internally. So you know, you work. Your job is digital, <laughs> with a handful of you know my other friends over at Horicon Bank. How did the rest of the organization you know respond? Like, what was the initial use case, and what were the people when you said, "Hey, you're moving my cheese"? What was their reaction culturally within Horicon Bank? Well, first we're, um, we're, I mean, we're actually still kind of in process, right? So not everybody has had that full exposure yet. But we're dabbling into we we really wanted to um, get our more marketing more robust and more intentful and automated. That that is exactly what we were looking for because we were doing these archaic, you know, great. I'm going to pull this list. I'm going to do this and very hands on. And so the fact that we could do um, all of these functions very automated, but yet with personal touches too. It's not just the digital, right? And that's what our culture is about. You want to be digital and you want to be focused, but you want to be with um, personalized too. And you want to be a touch point with our banker because people bank with people. And so you, we want to have all of that combined and just felt like total expert was the way to go with it. 
So within marketing, did you start mm-hmm. within a certain segment or did you go to automate the whole thing? Like, is this, you, you go eat the, you know, the whole, you know, mile long sub, or did you break it into pieces? We're breaking it into pieces. Definitely. We're, we're kind of taking those low hanging fruit, you know, the ones that, you know, um, the, the customer onboarding, we, we want to get those people who are just new to the bank and want to welcome them and tell us, tell them just about, you know, their account and whatever, but really introduce them to us and who we are as a culture as well. And that they're going to be learning and we want to, we're a partner with them and we want to be their financial partner. So contrast that for me. What was the original onboarding experience, right? So if I was a small business or an individual Mm -hmm. coming into Horicon, what would that have felt like? And how did, what would that have felt like? It would have felt like um, maybe (laughs) number one, depending on your banker, to, you know, maybe you're kind of lacking some of that, you know, lacking some of your consistency Uh, in an ideal situation, you're going to be opening that account. You're going to be closing that loan. Um, But, and then you're going to do the, you know, what's the two by two by two by six by one, where at two days, you're going to, you know, make that phone call at two weeks, you're going to do, or I'm sorry, two days, you're going to send a handwritten note. Two weeks, you're going to make a phone call. Two months, you're going to check in with an email. Six months, you're going to check in and with another email. And then one year, maybe something else. So, you know, we have that in place. And I'll say, it, I mean, it was working, obviously, but maybe not consistently, you know, or, or maybe you kind of go on that track and and um, and then people kind of fall off because they get comfortable or busy, you know, our bankers are busy. We're opening a lot of accounts. So it's it's a welcoming experience, but could it be enhanced? Absolutely. And so that's what we wanted to take it to that next step. Well, in, in addition to losing, well, lacking consistency, if it's left to the individual who might get busy, et cetera. Right. I'm guessing your original process lacked measurability. Oh, absolutely. 100%. I'm curious, why don't we start with actually in front of that, how did you decide, did you just go automate and build out what you were doing manually already? Or did you step back and say, hey, let's rethink what what it is we do? Um, I think maybe kind of a combination of both. Uh, it it might, might be a fair way to answer that because we knew we wanted, we know the onboarding is so important, right? Yep. You, you need to cus- talk to those customers right away and yep. get in their face and make sure you stay top of mind. And so onboarding is just like, that's a no brainer. We've got to do that. But as we build out more journeys, now that's when we're going to be more intentful of, okay, mm. maybe that's where our hate using the word but cross-selling or upselling and oh you know i'm gonna jump on the cross-sell upsell let's let's how about let's call it uh relationship enhancement or enrichment uh i'd let you know i'm a marketer let's put those terms into it like that um relationship enhancement right (laughs) but you you do you want to give more value to that customer. So it's not just about, oh, let's shove another product down their throat. Let's let's tell them maybe what, you know, what kind of life cycle they're in and understand what our, you know, our customers are going through and then talk to them that way. And let's talk to them. Let's not necessarily sell to them. Let's educate them of their options because you don't know what you don't know. And maybe as bankers, we think, well, yeah, you of course you should know we have 
this product. We have savings accounts, we have mortgages, but you don't know. I mean, you don't know that necessarily. So, well, and I'm curious because I'm going to guess your existing process when it was manual didn't look and feel like that, right? Because it's it's just too hard to create that number of journeys. So in this process, right? So you took what you originally did, you automated it, you built it out. What's the process for beginning to layer more and more into this? Like who comes up with the ideas? How does it actually get deployed? How do you tell if it's working? Well, um, it really does right now. It's kind of maybe a little bit more centralized. I'd really like to get more people involved and, and getting those perspectives from our frontline bankers, whether it's the people in our new account side or whether it's our lenders and understanding what they want their customer mm. journeys to look like as well and, and bringing it together as a team. I mean, right now, yeah, we're kind of kind of early on in this journey. So it, it might be a little bit tighter at this point. Um, but what I'm really excited about is all of the possibilities that it's not just even our external customers, but it's our internal customers too, that we can enhance, you know, our, our training culture and, and work with our, our internal people of understanding things as well. So there's so much possibility. It's, it's maybe a little daunting, but we're going to get there. And, and I'm excited about the reporting. Mm -hmm. All right. To actually, like you mentioned it before, with all of these manual processes, it's, it's next to impossible to do any kind of ROI or any kind of tracking of what's really working or what's not, or let's, let's try A and B kind of testing and see what kind of messages work and what kind of messages don't. Um, And we just haven't gotten to be that, um, that robust with it. And time is now time to do that. Time is definitely now. I'm curious, even the step before that, were some of the bankers who'd been at Horicon for a long time resistant to this change? And what did it take to convince them? Yeah, you got to show value for them, right? What's in it for me, not just on the customer side, but internally too, what's in it for me. And if you can show that there's a value added to their day, you give them back because of some of these automated processes or because of some of these focused views, you're giving them back maybe some time where they don't have to sit Mm -hmm. and search through their book of business. They don't have to search for these opportunities. It's kind of handed to them, right? Right on a, almost like a silver platter, if you will, that they can, oh, here's, you know, my top five people of um, something that I should, you know, oh, that would be perfect for them. I need to start this conversation. Oh, here's some birthday people I should, of some of my top customers, I should, say happy birthday to, you know, just making those personal connections. Yeah. I can see that being a value. And yeah. so what about even this idea of testing? Because I know yeah. most banks, this idea of doing AB testing that we don't send everything to every customer exactly the same is going to take a little bit of getting used to. Right. It is. It's that's not something you, you, you just nailed it on the head where it, it's not something you can just kind of jump into and maybe have a buy-in and that's why you have to do it. Like maybe you test it a little smaller at first and to show that different subject lines, different content, even pictures or whatever that you might get a different kind of reaction. And, but if you don't test it out, you have no way of knowing why people aren't are or are not opening or, you know, click through rates or anything on that kind of thing. If we're talking about emails per se. So. And 
even this idea uh, of click-through rates and response rates you know, that we don't get in a lot of the process. So as you go about this cultural change, one of the things you brought up early on was the meshing of culture with total experts. How did you even begin to assess like, hey, are we good partners? You know, like, is we're moving from kind of dating to true courtship, you know, in what right. that looks like, are we ready to get married? How do you begin to assess that? Well, I think it's also um, when you see, you know, when you're vetting and um, working with new new relationships, new vendors, um, to see that they're constantly growing. You know, they're they're selling you this product, great, but they've got this huge roadmap ahead of them. So it's just going to keep getting better and better and better. And they're very in tune to their customers and mm. what our needs are. And to be able to be part of that too, to say, hey, have you thought about this? Or let's work together on making, you know, this kind of an enhancement or um, take this journey and, and let's let's take it to that next step. And um, I think that's what was really exciting about Total Expert is, you know, they really nailed down that mortgage side, right? They, I mean, that is, that yep. is bread and butter and it is good and it is solid. So you know, that proves themselves. And now you talk about adding in all these other steps, the banking side and everything. How can you not be excited about something like that and then get to be a part of that? I, it, I think it, that matches good because yeah, we're, we're evolving too as a bank. So, well, and this sounds a little bit different than the typical vendor relationship where I don't want to say it's always adversarial, but it's like I sold you one thing, you thought you bought something else. Mm -hmm. Reconciling those two things can be quite the challenge. Absolutely. And I know because we work a lot with Total Expert, like that is also true. But how is working with them different when you have to bridge these gaps? You know, you have so many different people. They do, but they do really well is having the different you know, um, areas of people to talk with you and to work with you. You know, you have your implementation teams, you have your training teams, you have your customer success managers. I mean, that, that's yep. how they, they're lining you up to succeed versus lining you up to, okay, we're going to implement and then like, good luck, have fun. I'm never going to talk to you again, unless if you have issues or problems, you know, they want to grow with you too. And they want to make sure that you're getting the most out of out of um, the system and the capabilities. And so speaking of getting the most out of the capabilities, how do you expand the utilization within Horicon that you end up with more Chrissy's and Chrissy's teams and advocates? Because you, you had mentioned, you know, you eventually want to get out of the centralized mode right. and get into one where, you know, people take ownership of their own A-B testing. I mean, right. it might not even be, you know, in a CRM sense, they might just begin to learn. It's like, hey, I need to change my messaging depending on who I'm talking with and see who responds better. What's the plan for beginning to expand that culturally? I'd love to see us take that. Um, we have a great internal training team too that we're enhancing, you know, that kind of their roles. And I want to make sure that they're involved in this and the conversations because they have a very big outreach, right? Within uh -huh. our, our, um, our community of bankers. And so involving them making sure along each step that you do talk to and we continue to talk to and expose multiple layers. It's not all just about the front line either. Sometimes it's about the yeah. back office that kind of maybe get a little forgotten about. You know, make sure that everybody's on board 
and understanding what this thing is. You know, when we're, um, we do a lot of internal for communications, we do these little like um, HB news kind of videos, you know, they're just short, whatever, you know, when, when we're talking about things, you want people to understand like, oh yeah, I've heard that before, not go, what is that? I've never heard of about that or that doesn't apply to me I'm not on the front line or you know we don't want that kind of that kind of culture here we want to to be more involving it's going to take time it's not an overnight process right it's kind of I've I've used this analogy probably to death so some people would be like okay Chrissy knock it off but it's like baseball (laughs) where you you got to play you want to hit for those home runs right you want to yep. get those big wins and those and you need to get those but you also have to play that small ball and you also need to get those base hits and get on base and keep you know hitting that around and you're still going to score and you're still going to win off of that so it's, it's that combination and finding that balance really well in fact to torture that analogy you get a lot more mo momentum right when you get people on base and you know those you know as you said the low-hanging fruit right. when you looked across at the low-hanging fruit what was so i'm not gonna this is not specific to horicon but i've worked with a lot of banks over the mm-hmm. years we like to have meetings <gasps> everything is another meeting so how do you keep low-hanging fruit actual low-hanging fruit versus you have now actually like needed it to death that it is no longer low-hanging fruit because we're six months into like meetings about it yeah that that's i'm (laughs) that's a challenge that is certainly a challenge um i think we might be getting better at it to be a little bit more intentful and say okay if we're gonna have this meeting we're going to have it because we're going to come up with some action items out of it. So I'll even and the action the, item is not another meeting. No, I mean, okay. Maybe sometimes we're not going to talk about those. We're going to talk about the ones that aren't. Um, for example, when we're working on this mortgage side and met with our head of mortgage and our head of retail and just like, what are our gaps? What are our pain points? And, you know, within our processes of current process, I mean, we are a lending machine, not a problem on the closing part, but where is it that we could do better? And so, yes, I had a meeting with him, but it was also an in-person meeting. Like I sat in his office and we mm-hmm. just we just chatted. It wasn't this formalized whatever. We just kind of chatted through everything okay. and came out of that with saying, you know what we need to do? We need to concentrate on our in-process. So when mm-hmm. somebody puts in their application till the time of closing, we need that part improved with the communications with our customers internally we're fine but with our customers we don't talk to them enough we don't give them enough information so out of just that one little sit down all of these things came out of it right where that's going to give us a big roadmap to work on now and to concentrate on so how do you go about i realizing it's early days so you're probably not out of capacity yet yeah. But what what are your thoughts as the person who has to own this? How do you actually prioritize, you know, when that laundry list becomes, you know, five different stakeholders, six different stakeholders, you yeah. don't want to be, you know, the hippo, the highest paid person or the loudest mouth around how you select that roadmap. How are you thinking about that prioritization? Really trying, you know, you are again just kind of nailing it out because it, it is hard. We're we're a community bank, right? So for our in, 
our instance, um, you do get pulled in a lot of directions. Like this is a priority, but yet there's a hundred other things that I need to be working on too. So to keep that focus is, is very important and to rein it in. And so it is finding those partners. And like you said, we are early on. So I think even just having these conversations, it's becoming more apparent as I talk to more people who would be good partners going forward too, as, as we continue to grow this. But it, it's a challenge where we do need to focus and to prioritize because you, you can't do it all. You can't do it all right away. We, we got to say, okay, here's, here's that number one thing. We're going to get good at that. Now we're going to go to number two, three, four, five. We're going to keep working towards it. But, you know, if you can find the magic answer to that, I think, you know, a lot of people would be really excited to hear. You can make a lot of money consulting money. Yes. Now, one of the other things I've appreciated from Total Expert is a platform, but it, I think is another cultural issue to get around is you can continuously improve it, which mm-hmm. takes away the onus as opposed to, you know, say a core conversion or working with any of the big, you know, kind of hard iron implementations, right? Where I, you know, I have to spend a lot of time perfecting my spec up front because that's what's going to be built when we go about testing testing means you know alpha and beta testing does it do what we designed it to do not is it actually fulfilling what we you know business wise want right so that's a cultural change mm-hmm. and i would say the second big cultural change is i can also undo it relatively like if it just the bed we can wind this thing back pretty easily right how do you get that spread, you know, culturally from a mentality and approach or, you know, is that kind of, Hey, there's no danger to getting it out because we can always improve it. And we can always take it back. Right. I think that's, I mean, that's a big adjustment that we are working on internally of, we don't have to have it perfected all the time. I mean, yes, there are certain things that you do, but like, let's not be afraid to say, Hey, let's try it. And if it fails, okay, it's fine. We'll take a pause and we'll fix whatever we need to fix and move on. But it's it's kind of like that analysis part by paralysis, or paralysis by, I always say it backwards, paralysis by analysis, right? Where yep. you just keep going, oh, but if we do this and we do this, and I admit I can be very guilty about that because I'm very thorough in you know thought processes, but you have to take that step back and you have to take that jump. You have to take that risk. Um, does it always work out? No. But does it sometimes work out? Yeah. And you can keep building on it. And it, it's that risk versus reward. Mm-hmm. You have to really start weighing that out versus perfection. But, but that is also a hard cultural thing. Yes. Right. Whereas yep. we would rather optimize around minimizing risk versus reward. So last you know, part related to this is we come to a close. When you think about what the journey has been like, you know, in this moving to very much, you know, a SaaS-based iterative process that's customer-driven, personalization, right? Like, and heaven forbid it's in the cloud, you know, as well, right? Like take all, take all of the buzz, scary buzzwords, right? right? Yeah. Wrap them into one um, that I'm sure dude, someone in the teams had wanted to explode. But what is there anything you would have done differently 
in either your beginning of the engagement, the insight in the partnership, or that you'd say to others, like, here's the gem of like, we might've gotten lucky or we are good, but like, this is the part that really bore fruit for us. I think um, for, for us, we've had a really great experience, but there, it was towards the beginning where I, I think some of us wish we would have asked maybe more questions, right. Or, or maybe even talk to others right earlier on in the process of who have had some real big successes and understanding how they were setting things up um, on the get-go um, and clarifying maybe some language, you know, banking, everything. There's a lot of lingo, right? So mm. what you might consider or what we say is, you know, a RIM, they is a, you know, is a, a contact director. You know, there's just those kinds of things that seem so simplistic and like, why can't I understand that? But where maybe some of the, like, maybe I didn't ask the right questions. And hmm. um, yeah, that and just lost in translation. Even if you yeah. asked the right question, did I not ask it in the way that and, right. and, I and, answered what my intent was? Right, exactly. And it was really the simple things. It wasn't the complex things. It wasn't the, hmm. you know, the, the showstoppers. And so I think, and it was maybe more, you know, the self-motivated kind of, like your heart on yourself going, well, why didn't I do that? Or why didn't we do this? But I think that's also shows a big success too, of if that's my pain point. Yep. I mean, come on, that's, that's, that's I so mean, minor, <laughs> like it's yeah. easily work around. Uh, that says a lot. So yeah. um, thanks for taking the time to share your journey, especially so much around like the culture and the change that needs to go on with this. Yeah. I think that is lost. I think you also really did a good job of teasing out that either partnership is not just the new buzzword or PC way of saying vendor, right? Like right. I love that the very first thing you brought out was that cultural alignment in your path towards that. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jason. It's been a lot of fun. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Lisbeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media, or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast, and in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.